narrow quantitative metrics from academic scores just don't don't give you a sense of who those people are. And Agile is, is trying to provide structure, but structured freedom. But then we also need to create some space and freedom within that structure to be able to make decisions and respond to the needs of the people that we're serving as they change. Being Agile is about a mindset around the openness to collaboration um, and regular reflection. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and today's guest is Tim Logan, who is an expert, advocate, and consultant on agile principles and values, bringing them into the education space. He has his own podcast, the Future Learning Design Podcast, and he's quite active in terms of his connections, his understandings, his uh, conversations in the world of progressive education and how we can make things different. What I'm particularly interested here and uh, learning more about from Tim is this idea of bringing Agile into the classroom. As Tim will show us, bringing an Agile into the classroom, into the school, into the district, isn't as scary as it might seem. Even though it comes from the software development world, there's so much that's already being done that is Agile. And understanding and embracing the principles and values of Agile will really take projects and team collaboration and even personal initiatives in different directions, creating spaces for thinking, for doing, for creative production uh, that uh, may not have been as easily facilitated without Agile. So without further ado, I leave a space for my conversation with Tim about so many things, including project-based learning and bringing in Agile into the education space. Well, hi, Tim. I'm really excited uh, you are with us on the show. Uh, we've been talking uh, on LinkedIn for a while and, uh, and we've been chatting back and forth over the last few months. I'm really interested in what you bring to the table in terms of your knowledge and expertise and experience, uh, specifically with Agile, but I know there's so much that, that you do in terms of your, your pedagogy and approach. And the uh, first question I'll ask you is, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Great. Thanks, Ben. Um, it's great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. It's my first time on this other side of the mic from my normal podcasting interviewer position. So now I'm super happy to be here. Um, so my kind of passion and purpose professionally is really just about learning primarily. I mean, I've been a teacher for 15 years, but, but also now work closely with leaders and uh, teachers within schools to support, to support a learning culture developing um, wherever they are. So whether that's in a classroom with supporting teachers and um, their own learning, um, or whether it's with leaders um, supporting their own kind of agility and learning around their leadership role, or the learning for the whole organization. So looking at agile and ways that we can bring that in to, to develop the learning within the whole organization. So yeah, really learning is kind of my buzz, my passion. And, and that's why, you know, I love, I love what I do. And one of the questions that I ask every guest, actually the question I ask every guest so we can get a shared understanding is, is how do you define learning? Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a great question. It's a good question. And it's one that, you know, definitely is around a lot. I do a lot of work with accreditation and now the accreditation organizations are really asking that question. You know, that's what gives schools their vision and their purpose is their own definition of learning. Um, but I would also say it's something that kind of defies definition to some extent. I think there's, there has been a tendency in education to define learning quite narrowly. Um, so, you know, as a cognitive process, as a change in long-term memory, for example, from Dan Willingham. 
Um, but I think that then ultimately then leads to quite a narrow view and definition of what education is as a as a you know as a system or as a a process. I think fundamentally it's a kind of an emergent property for me learning. So it sounds quite abstract, but in a way it's like you put the conditions in place, you create the conditions within a classroom, within a particular sequence of learning, or you know the the interactions the resources you put all that in place as an environment but actually you don't control whether the learning happens it's kind of an emergent property of all of those conditions that you put in place so it's it's difficult to define in that sense because it is like a like a like culture is an emergent property um, but I would say that it's fundamentally a process of change and growth really that's about as close as I, I get to drawing boundaries around it. And I guess the question is though, it, 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 we could set the conditions, we can't control it. Nevertheless, assessment comes into play in every school. People wanna know and measure in whatever way, qualitative or quantitative way, what learning is. If it's difficult to define, how does assessment fit in this? Yeah, absolutely. I think, and that's one of the reasons why we, why we, pull back into defining learning quite narrowly because then it, it enables the assessment to happen in a more, you know, uh, what specific or, or valid way. Um, because, you know, as soon as we start talking about learning as an emergent property or, you know, these slightly more open definitions and fluid definitions, of course, by definition, it's then very difficult to capture that um, and draw very fixed edges around it in terms of assessment so of course we need to try and evidence learning and growth in certain ways but i like to talk about it in terms of evidencing growth or learning rather than actually measuring it or assessing it perhaps because i think we often fall back into that much more quantitative space um, when we when we do that um, and of course, there's a place for that. There's, there's, an, there's a time when those kinds of assessments are perfectly reasonable and valid in terms of checking progress and, and developing understanding with very specific knowledge domains or whatever. But actually, when you take learning as a full and whole process, um, then I think that, that measurement and assessment box kind of pushes us into, back into a specific, a, a quite a particular space quite quickly, which I resist. So what does that evidencing look like? Or what are the different forms that that could look like? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think, I mean, I would say quite honestly, I think a lot of schools are exploring exactly that question. And they're, you know, so the, the responses to, to that question are emerging from schools now. And so the kinds of things it looks like is performance-based assessment, um, you know, images, videos, you know, students reflecting on their own uh, kind of before and after process within whether it's you know the development of their the complexity and, and depth of their questioning that has grown over time or you know and then you get into other kinds of spaces of evidencing things like growth in social and emotional competencies you know and a lot of that has to come in a very qualitative way um, through through discussion through dialogue through kind of recording feedback based on on the process um, but it's, it's, of course, it's not an easy thing to do when, you're, when you start talking about these quite um, open and abstract ideas. Um, but I think that's quite an exciting area 
of development where those assessments are, or you know, those those processes of evidencing it are really developing. So uh, that's a lot of the work I do, for example, with NIESC, with their ACE learning protocol, is a big part of, of what happens there is think of looking at ways to evidence the growth of the impacts that we're trying to develop with young people. Um, so I do a lot of work with schools um, who are working with the ACE learning protocol, which is which is the new framework that came out in 2016, which Peter Mott um, created with with a team in um, over in, in Boston. And essentially, it's trying to shift the idea of accreditation away from being, again, a, a kind of fixed process of checking off standards of whether X or Y have been achieved to looking at a more open and fluid process of transformation of a school into a learning organization, which means then we are looking at a different set of outcomes. And we're not necessarily looking at specific outputs in terms of test scores or, you know, report cards. Um, and transcripts, etc. We're looking at the outcomes that and the impacts that the school is having in terms of learning on those young people. So, again, that shifts the shifts the dial in terms of talking about then how, of course, we evidence that and how, as an accreditation organisation, they go in and and assess that as whether it's happening or not. But you know, it's schools holding themselves accountable to their own definition of learning, their own identification of the impacts that they want to have on the young people and developing their own ways that they demonstrate that they are having an impact. That seems quite um, an interesting entry point into school change because we talk about consultants coming in, we talk about educators with, from within, we talk about leadership, we talk about parents, talk about students, but seldom is it brought to the table that the accreditation organizations could also be drivers for change. We tend to think, oh, but to do this, to get accredited, we need to do X, Y, Z. But having that be a driver could be very powerful too. I, I agree. I think it's a, quite a bold move from NIASC that, that I think some of the other organizations are beginning to think about themselves as kind of change agents as well. But I think certainly NIASC have gone out there and done something quite courageous in that space. I think, you know, the reality is we work in a system of accountability, right? And we have all these measures of accountability, and that's what quite often is the reason for not changing. Because, you know, we have to keep maintaining our, you know, our PISA scores or our, you know, standardized test outcomes, whatever it is. But if some of the agents within that system of accountability, like accreditation, can use their, their power, such as they have it, to influence schools to, to change in positive and transformative ways, which is kind of the language that NIASC use themselves, then brilliant. I mean, I'm, you know, that's why I really love working with them and with that protocol, because I think it's, they have, have done something really interesting there. And what is your experience? Now, this is going to be a generalizing question, but what's your experience with the parents' reactions to some of these changes? Um, it's really interesting when you engage with parents about, I mean, you know, you know well yourself from working in schools for a long time. You engage with parents and you ask them what kinds of outcomes do they want for their children in terms of their life. And the types of outcomes that they talk about are happiness and well-being and flourishing and, and meaning and purpose. And, and of course, 
you know mastery and and strong abilities in certain areas and ability to to kind of function and be successful in the world and then you look at the the, the traditional types of outcomes that a school would put most of its attention and an emphasis on and it's not that right it's it's tends to be much more knowledge focused and and qualification focused and outputs focused um and so i think the message that uh, that schools want to change in those ways really resonates with parents you know they're they're fully on board with that that idea because it aligns much more with they what with what they want for their own children what you know what i myself as a dad want for my own children but at the same time there is a sense of and of course we all have it this sense of slight trepidation about well okay that sounds brilliant in in theory but in practice what does that mean for my child what does that mean for the way that you're going to give me report cards at the end of every term or what does it mean for the life chances of my child in terms of accessing the next level of their education you know of course the reality of the system doesn't go away and people so parents still ask those questions um but i think you're starting from a strong base in the sense that they're generally completely aligned with the idea that those are some pretty good and important impacts you know and outcomes that we, we want to work with and we want to support our children to develop and what about NIASC or accreditation organizations, their relationship with universities? What's the connection there? Uh, well, I mean, for many of the accreditation organizations, they already accredit many universities themselves as well already. Um, so there's a connection there. Um, there is some degree of influence that a, an accreditation organization can have in both higher education and you know uh, primary and secondary education sectors generally um in terms of influencing the next you know the transition between the two um i think you know there's some interesting things going on like with mastery transcript consortium and those kinds of ideas of shifting shifting the expectations of higher education to support uh, you know, the students coming through from high school. And I think, you know, some of the accreditation agencies are in, engaging with that, you know, those kinds of conversations. I know, for example, Greg Curtis, who I spoke to on, on my podcast, he works a lot with, but he worked to develop the, the ACE learning protocol with Peter, and he also works with the Mastery Transcript Consortium. So, you know, there's a, there's some degree of, of overlap between those conversations happening to try and influence what's going on in, in higher ed um, as well as. And I guess that's the question because if you hear these stats that go out there and they could be urban legends that admissions officers only have six or seven minutes per application and that, you know, the best way to get through is to have a number so that they can just sift through it very quickly. How do we evidence learning in a world where universities are still looking at scores, if nothing else, because they have say 30,000 applications or whatever it yeah, might be. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's an efficiency to the quantitative metrics, right? If you, you know, yeah, if the time is a constraint, then of course that's, it, there's, it's useful to, and it's easy to use some proxy. But I think also there's a, there's an increasing need 
for differentiators for our young people. You know, we know how amazing the young people are that we work with and all the different aspects and different qualities and, and areas of developing expertise they have. And I think the numbers are one dimensional and the numbers are, you know, in certain in certain areas there are, you know, with great inflation, there's been, you know, there's a huge number of, of I think the IB doesn't suffer from this as much, but in other, in other more national sectors, they've had great inflation over the years. And actually it's really difficult to differentiate between people who are getting top grades in, in, you know, the, whether it's A-levels or, you know, whatever, or, or GPA. And actually you need different differentiators now. And I think, you know, universities and colleges are also understanding that, and I think they're also realizing that they need to begin like mastery transcript to, to question the validity of the numbers because the numbers only give you, you know, it, it's very easy to be a very compliant, conscientious student and, and work the system, play well in the system, but actually the qualities um, and the attributes that are going to really enable young people and then young adults and as they go into work to thrive are the attributes which where they can create value and have you know entrepreneurial mindsets and and attributes that will support them to be delivering value more more kind of innovatively and more in a more self-directed way and the, the narrow quantitative metrics from academic scores just don't don't give you a sense of who those people are so yeah there's there's still a lot of kind of interesting open questions related to it but i think it's it's shifting and do you think that's the same in the uk with russell group universities and things like that 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 they're also ready to move beyond the the numbers i mean it's it's a good question honestly i'm not completely sure i think the the education system in the uk has tended to be a little bit they've they've tended to double down on the traditional aspects um, from what I've seen over the, the last decade um, in quite interesting ways. I mean, I've, I follow a lot of the research informed kind of teaching and learning that goes on. And that's, you know, that's been really interesting to watch that develop over the last 10 years with research ed and, you know, some really interesting organizations who are really pushing the idea of evidence-based teaching and learning, right? Which is on one level is great, but I think on an, on the flip side of that, that has, ended up towards pushing pushing quite a lot of the education um, emphasis down a more traditional route because they're looking at cognitive science um, research which which as we where we started with our definition of learning comes back to a relatively narrow definition of change in long-term memory and academic uh, you know knowledge development and so you've ended up with quite knowledge rich curricula you've ended up with quite traditional um, biases, if you like, in that system. So I think, in a way, probably not. They're not. They're not as ready to question um, the validity of that. Um, but I also think the same things are true. You know, we're seeing, we're seeing with COVID, and we're seeing with even before COVID, people questioning the system as such that it is that it. You know, that it trains a relatively standardised and kind of compliant output at the other end of it, and and actually the jobs market. The economy is demanding something rather different and a different skill set um, and you know so people are people are beginning to realize that and it's beginning to filter down but i think perhaps in the uk maybe 
maybe less so. Um, but you know, you've got interesting, different little little bright spots happening, like the London Interdisciplinary um, University, which is you know really trying to push push much more entrepreneurial and inter interdisciplinary work. You know, so there's there's exciting and interesting things happening everywhere. Tell us about your work in Agile. This is something I find absolutely fascinating as because Agile is, is something, you know, principles and values that come out of the software world. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how that exists within the world of uh, non-education work and, and how that comes into education. Because once you kind of see behind the curtain, you see, oh, actually, maybe it makes sense, but, but maybe that might be something new to many people. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, it's been really interesting journey for me over the last couple of years, learning about it myself. And then, and, and again, seeing, as you say, behind the curtain and realizing that really a lot of the same, a lot of the conversations about the kinds of organizations and the kinds of teams and the kinds of competencies we want to develop are really a lot of the same things that we want in schools and colleges compared to companies. Um, so yeah, so Agile, I think, the curtain that you talk about is can be a bit of the jargon there's quite a lot of jargon around agile in terms of scrum and scrum masters and kanban and all of these these terms which i think for some people can be quite interesting and they want to find out more and quite off-putting at the heart of it all is a, is a way of working that that builds learning and collab within to the of a team or an organization so the idea that you flip it and look at look at what agile is not, you know, a very fixed, um, long process at the top of a very rigid organisation, coming up with ideas about how the how the company or the organisation should should develop, you know, going through long strategic planning processes and then and then kind of instructing the rest of their team at the end of that long process to go and you know what to do right the old kind of command and control model and clear more in covid that that just doesn't work it doesn't enable a an organization to adapt and pivot in anywhere near the amount of time that they've got so the cycle time for for their products or services or you know to pivot that kind of a rigid top-down type organization so that's what agile is not so then if you you know if you flip it it's then well wouldn't it be great to then work in an organization where collaboration is really built into the heart of the way that teams are structured and the way that they work together and so that's that really is what agile then is is short cycles of planning, doing, reviewing, adapting um, within teams. Um, and yeah, there's different roles within teams and that's where some of the language comes in. But, you know, teams collaborating to deliver value as quickly as possible. So you look at companies like Amazon, um, some crazy statistic, like every, they deliver new software every seven seconds or so, you know, something incredible, right? In order to keep responding to the needs of your users, service users, customers, whatever you want to call it, you have to constantly be checking and rechecking and thinking and discussing 
what it is that those users need, how can I deliver better value, right? So if you think about it in an education context, we're, you know, our customers, if you like, are the parents and the students. We want to be delivering value to them constantly, which is really rich learning experiences that, that are really relevant and kind of current to their needs. And so, you know, we need to constantly be going through cycles of understanding what are their needs? How are their needs changing? How is the environment around them changing the needs of the, the you know, the, the broader network, the broader economy or the jobs market or, you know, in order to keep adapting. And so, and, you know, the other part of it is schools have been historically quite rigid hierarchies, right? In the way that, um, the way that they are structured and the way that they function. And again, you've got a few very well-meaning people at the top of the organization working on strategic plans, five-year strategic plans, school improvement plans. And then, you know, there's a lot of people working incredibly hard further down this hierarchy who are the ones doing the doing, you know, out there teaching the students really, you know, doing the, the really amazing daily work of, of supporting learning. Um, and often in some, some organizations, there is a, a, a gap between those things, right? You've got a lot of people, a few people at the top and then a lot of people down the organization doing. And so the idea of agile is to, to break those rigid roles into how can we enable more people to be thinking and doing to be making decisions to adapt and pivot if they need to, to change their curriculum, to change their teaching approaches, um, to change the way that they're doing their own, their professional learning or the way they're accessing training. How can they do those things in the most relevant, relevant and kind of interesting way for them to, again, just keep delivering more and better value to the people that they support in that the students or that might be the HR team delivering value to the rest of the staff. It might be the middle leaders delivering value to their people in their department. So, you know, you've got internal customers, if you like, um, in the way that you can keep thinking about how to deliver value there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, a kind of whistle stop tour in a way of all of this, the dynamics around Agile, but you know, fundamentally, it's it's a process of of short cycles of learning um, and collaborating. And one of the things that yes, it's just that uh, the the adapting, the short cycles, the, the constant reevaluation. But I think if I think about that within the classroom, let's say, or or within a cluster of classrooms, I think about the curriculum. And one of the problems that I have with having a curriculum is that if you have it set in stone, you're writing something before you even get to know your kids before you get to know what interests them, their strengths, their needs, their, their interests, whatever they want. And I'm wondering if bringing in an agile set of values and principles to the classrooms allows you to have the skeleton of a curriculum, where we want to go, but how we get there adapts to our, the needs of our kids, whatever those needs are. And that's the real student-centric approach to teaching and learning, isn't it? Absolutely, definitely. But I would also say that I think many of the best educators do that anyway, right? You know, I mean, of course, some curriculums are particularly rigid and don't allow any space for that. But, but I, I still think even the best educators do that anyway. They, they work with the, the full 
humanity of the, the children that they have in front of them and they adapt their approaches. So, you know, on, on one level, and that's why I like Agile, is on one level, it really resonates with educators because they are responsive. It's a responsive profession, right? They're always looking at the needs um, and responding in that way. Whereas, you know, obviously there are many other people and many other systems where perhaps it's less responsive and much more rigid. So I think, I think we can learn from those, those, those experts within the profession, but also I think I agree, we can formalize some of those processes of being more adaptive and build that into the system in order to, yeah, to focus our emphasis on those things rather than just saying, you know, this is my, this is my script. This is my curriculum. I've got to stick to this. And I don't care what, what needs you have right now as a team or as a school or as a, as a, you know, group of children, I'm just going to keep doing what I need to do. And that's, you know, we often find ourselves on that kind of treadmill again, because of many of those pressures and accountabilities from outside pushing to generate the results or generate the, the school improvement outcomes or, you know, and they're all generally for good, for good reasons and motivation. But what it does is it really locks people into quite a rigid process. And Agile is, is trying to provide structure, but structured freedom in the sense that, yes, we need a skeleton, as you say, of a, of a structure to work within. But then we also need to create some space and freedom within that structure to be able to make decisions and respond to the needs of the people that we're serving as they change. And that's what, what you said about the best educators are doing this makes agile less scary. It's not something that's weird from the software world. People are doing it already. Um, and without going into the technical piece of Scrum and Lean and, and Kamen and so forth, there are some things that could be brought into the classroom that would really help with projects and with, with going forward. I could, I could really see Agile and PBL blending together. Tell us a little bit more about how that could work. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I think there is there are some really light touch strategies you can just jump straight into with, with Agile, like the idea of using just a Kanban board to structure your, I mean, even on an individual level to structure your own kind of management and to-dos, right? So a Kanban board is very simply three columns, a, you know, a to-do column, your backlog, a doing column, and a done column. And basically you would just break tasks down. So again, it could be used to support a child who's struggling with executive function or self-management, and you, you know, you help them to break their tasks down. Those tasks go in the left-hand column and the, the uh, to-do column. And then as they start a task, they move the stickies across onto into the middle column, um, doing, they keep an eye on the things that they're doing. And then once they're done, once they've actually delivered the value, once they've, they've finished that task, then they move it across into the done column. Um, so that sounds on one level incredibly simple, right? Straightforward. But at the same time, it's really important that it's visible, that it's done often physically, I mean, you can use online tools for it like Trello, but, but, you know, having it up on the wall, for example, makes it visible, which means you can, you know, you can ask someone to hold you accountable to it, right? If you know, if you want, you can, you can check in with people. And that's a, part, a big part of the agile process is having those check ins. 
um, you can also look in the middle column and you can see, well, how many things am I doing at the same time? If I've got, you know, 20 or 30 things in, the, in my doing column, I'm probably not delivering value on any of them. You've got too much work in progress in the middle column. So, you know, let's move some of them back to the to-do pile, just focus on a few things and actually deliver value. So that's, that's a one very simple way that you can kind of engage with the process on a, as you say, on a PBL, a project-based learning or classroom level, you've got much more formalized processes. So um, one, one of the, you know, the, the main ones is EduScrum. So I've worked, I work a lot with Billy Vinans in the Netherlands who came up with EduScrum uh, 10 years ago um, in his own classroom, teaching chemistry um, and science in the Netherlands kind of quite naturally from a, a very project-based place. So engaging students in big projects that would be really kind of contextualized and meaningful, but then using the Scrum process, which is similar to what I've just talked about with the Kanban, using that process to then help a team, a student team to structure their own work. So, you know, he would set set their challenge, set their, you know, their, their kind of questions and their celebration criteria. So the, the, the definition of done for the project. So what does it look like when it's finished? Um, what does it look like when we've, when we've completed these different aspects of the project? So, you know, that would be more like your, your rubrics or your, you know, your, your success criteria. And then the students use a similar board, like a Kanban board, to chart their progress, to collaborate, to share out roles, um, and then to, to kind of monitor their own progress, have regular check-ins. And you know, the, the impact that that has on the, the students is phenomenal because they, again, as I said, they've got quite a structure to work within, but the structure allows loads of freedom for themselves to be working in ways as a team that plays to their own strengths, you know, so that different children can do take different roles, as we see in group work, you know, in the classroom and projects, they'll do that quite naturally. But this, again, just provides them a structure to do that. And then they hold each other accountable on the board, they can see what's being, what's the work in progress, what are they working on right now? What have they completed? And, you know, it, it means also that the, sh the work is shared, and that the outcomes are shared. And then, because it's visible, and you can inspect this, the, 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 the Kanban board regularly, um, they can see who, you know, who's completed which part, and also they they understand the learning outcomes that are coming out of each each part. So it's not like one third of the uh, the learning outcomes go to one child, and then a third to another child, and a third to another. It's actually that they're even even they're accountable to each other to make sure that they all have learned um, and understood the learning outcomes from all of the aspects of the project. So it's, you know, so the EduScrum is a really well-developed framework for using, um, yeah, these agile kind of methodologies within the classroom. Um, but I think, I think also it's important to say that people in agile talk a lot about doing agile and being agile. So it's, it's easy to kind of grab off the peg a way of working that is agile, but actually a lot of a lot of what um, is important is the underlying mindset around agile and that idea of doing 
just enough working, adapting, kind of pivoting where you need to, um, collaborating, just that kind of open mindset of um, cyclical change and reflection. A danger, I mean, it's the same with any tool when you, when you use it in school, the idea of just doing something different will necessarily change who you are. It's like a technical change rather than adaptive change. It needs to actually change the way you think about the process and the agile. So being agile is about a mindset around the openness to collaboration um, and regular reflection and, and all of those things that we've talked about already, rather than just saying, right, I'm going to use a Kanban board or I'm going to do Edu Scrum and that will make me agile. So that's a kind of an important aspect just to emphasize that there's a developing kind of mindset around agile as well as a set of kind of principles and values. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, certainly there are some good frameworks out there. And then the other, the other, just to final, finally on the kind of organizational level. So, you know, some great stuff on an individual level or a classroom level, but I also do quite a bit of work with schools who are looking to change their systems in terms of, the whole organizational level. So, and you know, that again, there's protocols and, and useful strategies for doing that. So for example, um, there's a really interesting strategy called strategic doing, which I've been using, um, which um, from uh, Purdue University, the Agile Strategy Lab, a guy called Ed Morrison, who's and his team there, come up with this really useful framework around action-oriented collaboration within within the whole school so or, or university or organization wherever to use some of the same ideas to develop teams to kind of really pull together the assets of different teams so you know maybe more like a professional learning community within a school in the kind of language that we are more familiar with from education um, to then develop specific pathfinder projects based on the way you know the way that the assets of their team based on a strategic vision for sure you know so it might be set by by the board and the directors in terms of what the strategic areas for development are in the school but actually the answers for what kind of strategic work happens comes from the teams and the groups themselves when they respond to the reality of their work on the ground, the reality of the assets that they have in their team. So it might be, you know, it might be some of the work that I've been doing with one school, for example, is looking at how we know our learners better as one of the strategic areas, right? So starting with a question, how can we know our learners better in order to then adapt our um, instruction and our learning experiences to their needs? And so a pathfinder project that develops around a team maybe maybe just around experimenting and trying some new strategies within a classroom to elicit from the students things about their passions and their interests and you know whatever it is it you know it's not necessarily radically different and new but but the idea is that you start with a strategic objective for the whole school and then actually you bubble up the process structures are, are, are bubbling up of positive initiatives, ideas from everybody within the organization in order to then just kind of foster that idea, those cultures of collaboration and, you know, support 
you know, the, the achievement, the real, the real achievement of strategic progress, rather than spending a whole bunch of time writing a strategic plan that, you know, a small portion of it ever actually gets done. This is like, no, we get to work straight away on our strategic areas based on some of the passions and interests and, and areas of development that the staff themselves can see need to happen. And of course, some of those, some of those projects work, some of those projects maybe don't work quite as well, but that's all part of the process as well, because you've built into it regular check-in points where you're seeing how are these projects developing, you know, how are they working. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, quite an open and adaptive process, but for the whole organization. So in a nutshell, you can kind of, you know, you can kind of engage with agile strategies on different levels, I would say. Um, and all of them have, I've seen have really positive impacts on the, again, the competencies of self-direction and, you know, collaboration skills and all of the things that we want uh, for the young people. And I would say also that all of the things that we want for our colleagues and the staff that we work with in our schools, you know, we want to create kind of nurturing learning organizations for, for the people who work there as well. So that's one of another one of my kind of driving purposes behind it is because I think it really helps to achieve those kinds of positive growth oriented organizations that I certainly want to work in. But what's interesting here is, is uh, when you talk about the strategic doing process and, and you know, even making that, that rough parallel PLCs, teachers want input. They want to be able to be empowered. I mean, okay, the word empower is, is troublesome, but they, they want to have at least a say in what happens. They don't want to be top down, which is exactly what many of us are saying should happen in the classroom, listening to the student voice having that, 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 that ability to influence, giving our interests and our expertise at the table. Same thing. Exactly, yeah, it, it really mirrors. I totally agree. I think the, the processes really mirror one another. And just as, you know, just as a really well um, run PBL process or really, really effective student-centered instruction is based on a lot of carefully structured planning so it's not you know it's not that it's just a free-for-all right and people do what they like it's very carefully structured and it really supports and scaffolds the process but allows a load of freedom for people to bring themselves into it for the children to bring themselves into that space to it to influence the where it's going it's exactly the same for organizations for me and that's why i think some of these agile frameworks and and systems if you like uh, not systems but frameworks provide that same structure but with a space for people to bring themselves into it and i think i think one of the dangers of a badly run process at an organizational level is that it just simply pushes the work back down to the staff you know it's like we want it to be a part the leadership might say they want it to be a participatory kind of consultative process but actually what it does is just said you know we're going to pass this burden of responsibility of coming up with the strategic planning and, and, and kind of visioning for the school back to the, to the staff. So I think there can be a danger that it just simply adds to the workload. It's similar to accreditation. You know, it, it can just be busy work adding to the workload of, of already really busy professionals. 
but at the same time if it's a really carefully structured process i think there is an opportunity and a way to streamline it so that it takes away a lot of that busy work and says let's focus on the things that really matter that that matter to you as as professionals and individuals in your classrooms or your teams but also the things that matter in terms of the value that we commit as an organization to deliver right so based on our definition of learning based on our, our guiding statements what do we say is the value that we're going to deliver to our young people let's orient ourselves around those things and forget you know let's let's try and reduce a lot of that busy work that's happening um because you know we've got a question is it really necessary that we're doing it why are we doing it maybe we're just doing it for external or accountability purposes let's reorient ourselves back around on the things that matter and the things that we we commit to as an organization tim um this is the part of the show where I just turn it over to you and say, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything that you'd like to, to tell us what's on your mind, things that you're thinking about, just, just what is left, you know, going on that, that you would like to, to address? Yeah. I mean, so just, just specifically, if people are, if people are interested, um, Rory Galvin, um, who's a, a colleague I work with in Dubai and I are running a session um, on the 7th of December on agile strategies for school improvement what we're aiming to do there is go through some of the things that we've been talking about here but but in you know with specific examples and case studies and practical um practical advice and support um we're looking at it for improvement on one level but you know there is also this whole interesting area of school transformation which is also happening as well and i think you know you were part of the relay i know and you know many other many other colleagues and and work were with a really exciting event but it's just an example of the, the the energy that is out there around really questioning and transforming a lot of the ways that we work and in, you know in schools in learning communities and and i think the agile stuff really supports those same aspirations i mean you know in the in in industries in software in in wherever the other sectors they talk about agile transformations and that kind of language of transformation is i think useful to us um in the education space because we're not all in the position to be able to just start afresh start a new school or a new learning community um you know many of us work within pre-existing structures um, that we were we're looking nudge or shift from within the the kind of structure that we're in so you know we're, we're looking at ways that we can do do a bit of both you know start creating some really interesting examples of agile schools or learning communities developing from the ground but also um, trying to support people to do do even small things within the classroom or on an individual basis um, to develop some of those same kinds of uh, techniques or strategies because they all ultimately kind of contribute to a developing culture around collaboration and and kind of learning as being part of the DNA of, of the, the way that we work. So that, that's kind of what we're aiming for. 
How do people get a hold of you? How do they find you? So I'm on I'm LinkedIn a lot. Spend seemingly quite a lot of my life on LinkedIn. <laughs> but it's um, it's an interesting you know forum for for discussions and and connecting with really interesting and like-minded people. So yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Twitter, although I use that a bit less these days, but I'm still there, T-E-B underscore Logan um, on Twitter. And my website is futurelearningdesign.com. Um, you can uh, find me on my podcast, the Future Learning Design podcast as well. So I've been uh, spending a lot of my time ch chatting to wonderful and interesting people as you have. So uh, yeah, no, all of those places, it'd be a pleasure to, to invite you to. Brilliant. Thank you, Tim. Really appreciate your time. Great. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Tim, so much for joining us on the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Benjamin Freud, and uh, please make sure to tune in to Tim's podcast, the Future Learning Design Podcast, that you can find on all major platforms. In the meantime, look us up on Coconut Thinking at www.coconut-thinking.design. We always look forward to uh, hearing from you, from getting your thoughts, your feedback, engaging in conversations, debate, uh, to take... Uh, innovative uh, curriculum forward, progressive ideas forward, and to try to see how we can make uh, experiences better for all learners uh, across the world and across all ages. See you soon.